0: favorite thriller presented by the thriller fiction podcast Jim Heskett talks to thriller authors about their favorite thriller books and now here's your host hey today I'm talking with Craig S. Wilson how you doing Craig I'm just fine Jim hope it's a good day for you too (laughs) it is a good day it's a hot day here in Colorado why don't uh, you tell us a little bit about you and about your writing?
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, actually, I've been married uh, coming up on 10 years with Melissa G. Wilson, and she's a publisher and an experienced writer. She's written 17 books and helped publish over 100, and if you're going to be married to her, you're going to write books. <laughs> <laughs> so I I actually was a songwriter before that and read th- 300 songs and three musicals, but I. I tried my hand at writing and um, without getting into a long story, I thought, well, I'm a recruiter and I've also played lots of weddings in my band. And so I'm going to write this book called Dating for Life. And the whole idea of it is that, you know, never lose chivalry. And uh, just if you get married, never stop, never alter what got you to the altar, you know, uh, keep dating and and keep the relationship, uh, keep the romance in the relationship. The problem with that is that I had a lot of Lonely Hearts Club people crawling out of the woodwork and I all I do all day long is fix people up with interviewing clients and candidates and then I thought oh this is going to turn into some sort of dating coach thing and I, I, I kind of ran from it. I turned 90 degrees and just ran another direction and mm. now I'm doing fiction and I really got hooked on writing fiction but it's historical fiction and I have always been a fan of books that sort of are, are period pieces and the synopsis is essentially—it's plausible that this could have happened, although the, the scenery and the time frame are are absolutely on the money, um, but the actual setup and the characters aren't. So think Dan Brown and uh, you know the uh, uh, some of what he does—heavy research, mm-hmm. Da Vinci Code. But it's not really true. But there are so many people that almost believe it to be true that they, they do the tour in Paris and everything else. So mm-hmm. those are all fascinating books for me.
0: So I've got your Amazon bio here in front of me, and I want to read one little paragraph and then let you fill in the rest of the story. The uh, Lucas Roca thriller series was inspired by a true story when Craig was sent on a business trip to Brazil. The first person Craig ran into was a scraggly street kid who tossed dust on his shoes, then asked him in Pigeon English if he wanted his shoes shined. Craig humored him, but when the kid was done, he asked for a tip that was 20 times the going rate. Craig haggled until agreeing to give the kid $5, and as soon as Craig pulled out his money clip, the kid snatched it and ran like the wind. What happened next?
1: Well, what he didn't know was I was doing triathlons at the time. So the good news is uh, he started going up the hill, and I'm on the beach area, right where uh, actually uh, Sheridan uh, Rio is, right in uh, Vitigo Beach. And he just started heading up the hill, and I just started following him. And so um, I was kind of like T three in Terminator, you know? He just kept <laughs> looking back, and I just kept coming. And so he'd go through, and the streets they get there's no streets, they get narrow, narrow pathways, and you start realizing these are places that are built on on cliffs almost and so these are dwellers that moved in 20 30 years ago it's just you know court, court tin roof and 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 just thrown together um uh, and and literally got way up into the uh, favelas and he kind of got into backed into a corner uh where the where the particular pathway ran into a dead end and so he pushed an old lady over threw the money up in the air and headed down another side little pathway and so I helped the lady up, pick my money up. And what blew me away is she scolded me. And she said, never mm. encourage the street rats. You only make the problem worse. Mm. And I thought, whoa. So you, you realize when you're on a beach, you've got palm trees and, and an ocean and, and you could think it's Hawaii or some other place. And I realized then and there this was a wholly different world. And I, it took me a long way to find my way back and so I was in these favelas, and they're they're nice people and dwellers, but um, you don't want to be there at night, and uh, it depends on the favela you're in, but you, you can literally see 12, 13-year-olds toting some auto, automatic rifles on their shoulders. Um, it's pretty mind-blowing, um, so it kind of, when when I decided to write fiction, I thought about what if this was a character, and it happened to this person, and all of a sudden, you know, he got thrown into the uh, the, the, the market uh, in that such a way, and then kind of went from there. So it's a fictional story. I had written originally a treatment of it for the '80s, and I decided uh, to update it and make it a four book series, kind of couched around the the pr- uh, preparing of Rio for the Olympic bid, and they're clearing out favelas. So what you have is um, really poor people with very few choices on how to make money other than pedal cigarettes on the beaches, sell fruit or, or pickpocket. And then you've got the drug gangs and the drug gangs, of course, are making pretty good money by peddling cocaine and, and marijuana. And if you're a kid and you need to survive, those are your choices. They're not very good. And so, um, Combined with that, some of the areas where they're living are being cleared out by the government to make room for parking lots and, and you know stadiums for, for the Pan-American Games and the Rio Olympics. So it's a pretty uh, amazing scene because looking out over all of it is, of course, the Christ Redeemer statue, one of the great man-made wonders of the world, looking out over everything with those arms extended. And so what, what, what Christo Redentor is seeing below is a whole lot different than uh, you might think.
0: Hmm. So today we're actually going to be talking about your favorite thriller, and we talked about this beforehand, and you wanted to talk about The Godfather by Mario Puzo. Now, I'd never heard of this book before. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Could you... Obviously, everybody's heard of The Godfather, Um, and I've seen the movies, and I actually read a book. I haven't read The Godfather book, but I read a book, I guess after Mario Puzo died, they had somebody else write a book in the series where it's like filling in the blanks between the godfather one and two and i remember reading that a long time ago um you talked about the thing fredo fredo's side business that ended up getting him whacked in book two sorry spoiler alert um but i haven't actually read the god the godfather so craig can you give us like a spoiler free teaser or synopsis uh about the godfather
1: sure um just a little anecdotal story. I was working as a teenager in a factory, a summer job, and this guy had the book, The Godfather, and he couldn't put it down. He says, this is just some amazing book. You got to read it. One of those kind of word of mouth things. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. So I went and got it. And um, it starts with three little stories, if you know anything about it, during the wedding of The Godfather. And, and each, so he's holding an audience for a baker and a funeral, director and uh, and he's meeting also with uh, a guy that's uh, presumed to be Frank Sinatra and they all have problems and they're coming to the Godfather for solutions they they were true to the book in the movie in that regard um, but it, it it's just riveting uh, from that point on and you keep wondering who this guy is and he's a family man and they have their values although some of their business practices are a little different than corporate America but it actually turned into this huge insight into a whole subset of society and also rules for, for anybody that reads the book, uh, gets into like how things need to be in, in, in any kind of business or organization. And I, I just found it a fascinating book. Um, I couldn't put it down either. And, uh, the other reason I became a, it became my favorite book is Mario Puzo, um, was darn near out of money. I mean, he, had started writing books in 1955, and Godfather hit in '69, and he had nothing left. Um, he'd written four books before, after that. He wrote Dark Arena and Fortunate Pilgrim and Runaway Summer. None of them were that good, frankly. Six Graves. So I couldn't. Re- I didn't read some of them. They weren't that good. I read another one of his books, uh, Omerta. But fundamentally, he hit it with The Godfather in a way that like, like almost like Margaret Mitchell hit it with the Gone with the Wind. It was one of those once in a uh, century kind of books that just resonated with a whole lot of people. And, of course, it spawned movies and licensing and everything else. It was a comeback for Marlon Brando, actually, playing mm-hmm. uh, Don Corleone. So just a fascinating book. And I've always loved that kind of book. And, and to kind of parallel it, um, I don't think that kind of book would make it as well today unless the author were already established. It's mm-hmm. a sad truism, especially for you authors out there that are writing books, because um, my first attempt at this book that I wrote uh, was just a thing called Rio. And I wanted it to be an epic like The Godfather. I wanted it to be this whole story with suspense, thriller, romance. A, a landscape that you wouldn't see, Michael scapes off to Sicily and, you know, you got that whole picturesque terrain almost like a James Michener novel and, and it's a really long book and the, the, the problem with today's reader is you're either writing for somebody who wants to read suspense or thrillers or goth or romance, right, and, and, and so it's very hard to write a book today that has all of it included godfather is one of those such books but it's a classic so you, so you can do it just like gone with the wind in a way but um uh so i decided to change my book and turn it into four-part series because i couldn't possibly develop the characters the way i wanted if i wrote just one book and it were long so i decided kind of like uh what they're doing with comic books you know there are movies being made out of comic books ghosts and skeletons one of them right the japanese comic series so the first book is just boom it hits you hard it's suspense it's a thriller you know lucas's uh, brother has a big problem right in the very first two pages and you know you're in for a wild roller coaster ride but over a four book series you can really develop the characters and their inner reactions and it gets tighter and tighter but th- that was my answer to rewriting what i had originally written to be a long epic it just wasn't going to work people won't read it
0: so, in in The Godfather, is Michael Corleone the protagonist, sort of like he is in the movie, or does it focus more on Don Corleone? I can't remember his first name.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Don Corleone is is the s- stories about him. The protagonist is Michael Corleone because his father is deeply, you know, one of the big mafia kingpins in New York. And Michael is never going to be like that. And he tells his fiancee, Kay, you know, this isn't me. This isn't who I am. And he's a war hero. And all the mafiosos are proud of him. They, one of their guys went off to the war and he became a, you know, a, a captain, I believe, or a sergeant. So, you know, they're very proud of him. And uh, he's coming back home and, of course, joining for the wedding. But he's telling his fiancee, this is never going to be me. And, of course, careful about what you say, but Mm. no spoiler alert there. But he's drawn into it because ultimately, uh, without going into the plot, I'm sure everybody knows it, but I hate to give it away, but you find that your family is more important to you. When it all boils down to brass tacks, it's your family. And you have to take care of your family, and you got to be true to your family, and nobody's going to mess with your family. And so Michael ends up kind of switching over when he sees – that in reality, some of the police that are involved and the politicians and everybody else, they're just as corrupt or more corrupt than his father. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they try to take him out. And of course that's when the family comes in. So, uh, that's kind of the, the genesis of the story. And, um, it's through Michael's eyes more than anyone else's, although it's not told in first party, it's a third person story with a lot of different perspectives. And, um, it's 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 just one of my favorite books but i that is a a book that it clearly comes bubbling out of me in in a lot of what i wrote
0: do you think does does the book have a central villain uh that you could talk about without spoiling anything or is it uh
1: a series of villains in in Godfather or in my in, books? in the godfather so in in the godfather um the central villain would actually be um, two things, the, the antagonist would be, um, not Clemenza. What was the guy who was, uh, the Turk and he wanted to introduce drugs into society. And, and the central rub was Don Corleone felt he makes a good living, uh, providing protection, getting favors with the politicians he's got on the payroll, um, and, and protection. And, and of course, uh, the numbers, the gambling. So why do you want to introduce drugs because it makes people crazy and you're gonna they're gonna lose their, it's gonna wreck their lives. So he has this certain redeeming thing about a sense of order. and there are others in other mafia gangs that don't feel that way. It's sort of like, no, that we can make more money and we're going this direction. And so that would be the antagonist, and of course, that's where it turns into a, a war over a period of time of certain actions happening so that's really uh, in, in a very ironic way the good versus bad even though the good is is a a, a a mafia family to begin with
0: do you think it's more like a slow burn kind of suspense story or is it more pulse pounding action thriller where does it fall in the subgenre of thrillers
1: uh, good question. So because it's an epic, there are some scenes that are absolute thriller, riveting. You don't want to mess with Luca Brasi who is Don Corleone's right-hand man because he's like a freaking monster horse who is actually humbled before the Don, right? So there's a couple scenes there and and stories about Luca where, you know, people were just scared out of their wits and when he took them out because they they, they crossed the Don or tried to embezzle or whatever they did. You know, the, the law of order in the gang was violated. And and there are some scenes like when Sonny Corleone gets uh, gets his at a particular toll booth, that's a heck of a scene. But it isn't built to be a story where it's just one after another, like like perhaps uh, what – and the book doesn't work that way either, but Robert Ludlam's uh, The Born Identity is really not as – riveting as a read it's an intriguing read the movie was made to be like non-stop i don't know how matt damon even catches his breath because <laughs> it's like never ending right and that's unfortunately what people are hooked on today um is is if you want to get a fix you want it every uh, three pages and you want to see scene after scene you know fast and the furious that's probable right but you know at the end of the day that's kind of what people are geared for in, in this world but a good book tends to take you on a whole lot of different journeys. Um, again, uh, frankly, Godfather being one of them, but born Identity and Robert Ludlam and all those good ones, there's a lot more to them than just uh, you know cheap action.
0: Born Identity is a very long book and there's a lot of dialogue between those action sequences which a lot of that gets cut out for the movie.
1: And, and what, makes, what makes Jason Bourne so interesting is that, of course, what a great setup. He doesn't know who he is in the first book. And uh, it makes it compelling that he's, people are trying to kill him and he doesn't know why. I mean, that's a pretty good beginning for a book. Right, but right. there's a whole lot of uh, flashbacks to things that happen in, in, through his dreams. And there's people he runs into that are giving him hints. And so that makes for a much better read. And it's a different medium, read. Than, than view. Um, when you read a book versus watch a movie, it, it's a different process, really. Right. And so um, you've got all the time in the world to sit there with a good book and read it for five hours at a time, and a movie's going to be about you know hour and 45 minutes.
0: Does The Godfather have a, a theme, that, an easily recognizable theme? I don't want to put you like, make you feel like you're in high school writing a, a paper on The Godfather, but does does the Godfather have a recognizable theme?
1: You know, I thought about that question, uh, and it, the real theme is um, do what you say you're going to do. That's the true theme. Although the one that everybody ran with was, "I made him an offer he couldn't refuse." You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's a great line, um, and 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 basically. Uh, his consigliere who's, who's, uh, Tom, uh, played by, uh, Robert Duvall who played it brilliantly. Um, so it's all business. It's like, we need, we have a proposition for you and we want to do this. And in exchange, we would do this and you can come and call on me in the future. And so they treat it like a business mm-hmm. only when you just say, screw you and uh, and go, you know, you know, get screwed and, and then we're not going to do it and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, there there, there are consequences. But but it's much more about uh, we can make this thing work. That's their approach um, until somebody says, you know, screw you. And then, of course, it takes a different tone. But mm-hmm. um, making an offer you can't refuse, yeah, that's kind of a, a very funny line. But I would say the, the theme would be more um, – if people are good in the community and people are respectful of how those rules are set up, then they don't deserve to be treated badly. They, they you know, they can just go, go about their merry way. Ironically, in the favelas, um, what I learned is – so you see, understand that most of the politicians never go in there except when it's election time. So these people have had to fend for themselves for 40 years, and they've stolen – power lines to be able to run maybe a little black and white TV there. There there's no water running in there, but they have a sink but the sink runs in uh, down a little hose to, to a a gutter and they, they really, really poor people. And usually the person on the hill that's at the very top of the hill is a drug lord because the roads are so narrow. You can't get there by car, by motorcycle. You can't even get there by helicopter because it's so dense. So when people are trying to do a raid on a given hill, the drug lord that's at the top has already gotten word from everybody. He's not there when when they arrive. And so there is a sense of this weird sort of order where um, there are rules and you don't steal from one another in your community. Mm -hmm. And if you do, there are consequences. You might get your fingernails pulled out the first time and the second time you get acid thrown on your hand. That's just the way it is. But if you abide by the rules, you're going to be okay. And so in a strange sense, it's very similar. And um, ironically, as I got more and more into writing the book, I started really thinking about the question of how does someone who's not legally empowered or elected to be the leader of a group of people, how how do they hold power? Mm-hmm. And, and And they do. And there are guys in, in gang leaders that are in jail that are still running gangs, and it's fascinating to think how that works. But it does. It's it's all over the world. Uh, gangs in little street corners, um, you know, big big drug cartels, and uh, and the gangs in Rio. Uh, you know, there's a certain person that becomes the elected person, and he's he's the quote unquote godfather of that little area, and people respect him or or they're in trouble. And it's, it's a weird order of things, but there is an order of things where you'd have total chaos.
0: So, um, about the Godfather, what's the one thing that makes it stand above any other thriller you could have picked to talk
1: about today? That it, as a book and the movie follows it pretty closely, that there is an order of things, and this guy is a very powerful leader and respected, but doesn't really want violence. And uh, and his son, the one son that's not in the gang, has nothing to do with it. He's not going to be involved. And 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 it the full circle at the very end, where uh, that the scene where Kay, his wife, says you're not involved in this, right? And he gives her a straightest look possible. He says, no, okay, that's not what I do. And then he walks in the room and the door shuts from behind. And just as it's shutting, she sees the guys kissing the Don's ring. And of course her husband's the new godfather. It can't be more of a full circle story where you go, whoa, because, uh, obviously, uh, Uh, what they do is they don't tell their families about what they're doing and he's not now telling her anything either because he's on the inside to that family and it's none of her business and she could get in trouble if she knew something she shouldn't know. So Mm -hmm. he's become his father and that's the ultimate full circle of the book.
0: So here's kind of a general question. What other besides thrillers, what else do you like to read?
1: I, uh, I always want to read a book that is – has incredibly good character development where I I care for the character. I I like a book that – I've always been a fan of Hemingway. I like a book with less words than more. Um, (laughs) I like a book that gets to the point. uh, There's a a fabulous movie out if you haven't seen it. I think it's called The, The Genius and it's Colin Firth. And it's about Sam Perkins and um the publishing firm that was doing Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And <laughs> you couldn't have three more different writers, you know. One one was incredibly concise, but he was always off fighting bulls and, you know, fighting his demons. And the second one could write he wrote literally a I think a fifty thousand word book that had to be edited down to about, you know, I'm sorry, 500,000 words, had, had to be down to about 130,000, and uh, and then you had F. Scott Fitzgerald who hit it big with uh, Great Gatsby, but he he just had the hardest time. It took him forever to write, you know, 5,000 words. You know, he just couldn't come out with it. He wanted to be precise, too precise, and it's it hung him up. And it's it's a great kind of insight into the three different writers and how this editor was really the genius and able to get things out of them. Mm. Um, and um, so I like a writer that, that picks a great story with a great character. I'm uh, – and that doesn't matter whether it's fiction or, uh, or nonfiction. I tend to lean toward historical fiction or, or actual uh, autobiographies if they're written well. If they're not, then it's a boring read. But uh, unless it's true sci-fi, I think art imitates life a lot more than the other way around. So some Mm -hmm. of the great stories that have come out, you know, think about all the things that happened in World War II. Think about, you know, just unsung hero type of stories. And you couldn't write that stuff. If you did, they'd say, oh, come on, really? You know, but yet there's some amazing stories out there. I'm also – a big fan of themoth.org. If you're not listening to those, you should. These are people's, just everyday people, telling stories. that are on usually public radio, like WBEZ in Chicago, and there's books on them. But you can listen to themoth.org. Not trying to plug it. It's just great stuff. These mm-hmm. are stories that you can't believe could happen, and people tell them very well. Mm-hmm. So a good story is is pretty much the basis of a good book. If, if you don't have a good story, it's not a good book.
0: Nice. So, Craig, what book of yours do you want to talk about today?
1: Well, I really have been uh, for two years working on a four-book four series. Um, it's, uh, the first one is called The Renegade Pawn. And it kind of starts out where I mentioned to you earlier, where this American comes into Brazil on a trip to actually find his heritage because he was adopted from an orphanage way back. And he is a, uh, a drug agent in an undercover drug agent in Boston on leave because of a bad deal gone down and there's a commission in, in, in looking into it. So he takes time to go down to Brazil to find his heritage. And, and a kid picks his pocket their very first day he's there. And uh, so their lives are sort of intersected in ways that nobody could predict there's a little bit of romance, although I scaled it back, but some good romantic scenes. But it's really about – and and the protagonist, if I would say so, is Lucas Horshaw. And Lucas is a street kid who just before picking this guy's pocket watched his brother killed by a death squad for stealing from store owners and who hired these off-duty cops to go into favelas and take out thieves that are robbing from them and and so he's watched his brother get killed and he's got two twin sisters and he's on his own he's got to take care of them they're 6 years old and so sometimes good people do bad things for a greater good and that wow. is kind of the whole premise of the story but i got to tell you <clears throat> the reason I, I i really had such a good time writing it is true to any historical fiction you start ch- studying. Well, where do the drugs come from? And are they buying from Colombia? And who are they? And and you, you start. Really, it, it it takes a, a, a life of its own. But you you can't believe the big money that's involved. Not necessarily in Rio, but but in providing drugs to Rio or providing drugs to the American market or European market and how they're what where the where the paper feed is. And I did a lot of homework. Um, I hope this doesn't happen to me, but I, there's some stuff in the book that's uh, pretty telling and predictive. I remember one time the CIA called on uh, Tom Clancy and they said, Can we have a word with you. And he said, why? I said, well, your last book, there's no way you could have known all these things. Now, where's the leak in our organization? You know, mm-hmm. and he's like, no, no, I just did my homework, you know. And uh, I it's pretty incredible what's going on Um When you do your research, and it's heavily researched books like a Dan Brown, you really get into some meat and potatoes of the drug situation. I never realized, but did you know that who the biggest drug exporter was in the Vietnam War? Who? The CIA. Mm. Because there was insurgent groups that needed to raise money to take on Ho Chi Minh, and so they allowed them to ship. Millions and millions of dollars of heroin to the American market, so they could have money, so they could buy weapons from America to try to take on Ho Chi Minh. Hmm. That's mind-blowing. And meanwhile, the DEA over there is going, "No, you can't do that, man." It's but guess what? One agency overruled the other. Yeah. And so you start seeing these things and as you're doing your homework and you're going, wow, it's a lot different than I thought. And the way the money's laundered and it's money. So money always takes a life of its own. And, you know, money matters to various banks and et cetera, billionaires. And so it's an yeah. interesting it was an interesting uh, experience writing the book. It was a lot more than I thought when I just got my pocket picked many years ago.
0: Some of those best stories have a little element of truth to them, right? A little little autobiographical element to, uh, to give it that extra juice,
1: right? Oh, these are very highly plausible uh, reasons behind what's certainly a fictional story.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, excellent, Craig. Thank you so much today for coming on uh, your favorite thriller to talk about, your favorite thriller, The Godfather, and also telling us about Renegade Pawn. It sounds like a really interesting story, uh, but thanks a lot for coming on, man. I appreciate having you on the show.
1: I was glad to be your guest, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I uh, hope we can chat again.
0: Thanks, Greg. Be good. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Your Favorite Thriller podcast. I'm Jim Heskin, and if you want to support the show, please rate and review it online and tell a friend who loves thriller books. See you next time.